0: Ah, the dog days of summer. Everyone's taking time off, chilling out, maxing, relaxing all cool. Maybe shooting some b-ball outside of their school. So today, we are rebroadcasting a classic episode of Go Time all about tooling. We took you to the future a few episodes ago. Now, we're headed back in time to 2019. 2019. This was originally episode 90, and it aired almost three years ago to the day. It was a simpler time then. Generics hadn't landed. COVID, nope. Social distancing was only something nerds knew about. This is the way. We didn't even have an unpopular opinions segment back then. So some of this conversation will be quaint, considering all that's changed in the world since then, but most of it is still highly relevant. We think you'll enjoy it, and we'll be back with some freshens next week when Natalie and Ian welcome Rana Steinberg to discuss
1: OOP and Go. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base, transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4J, can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code. End quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code insights. This link will be in the show notes again about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights.
2: Go
0: time Welcome to go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We take requests just like all the best wedding DJs. Head to gotime.fm slash request to let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Special thanks to Fastly for ensuring go Time reaches your ears super fast wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com.
3: Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Raya. On today's episode, we're talking about tooling. All those great tools that help us be successful, help us do our job. And we use them Go tools all the time uh, every day. We use them for building, for running code, for testing. Uh, we use them for formatting our code, for linting and vetting, and many, many, many more things too. And I think this show will be useful to anybody new to go that wants to get a sense of the tooling around that that we all use. Um, And I'm sure there will also be some uh, golden nuggets for the seasoned gophers also. And I'm so confident because of who's joining me. I'm joined today by in no particular order, Yana Dogen. Hello, Yana.
2: Hello. Hey,
3: welcome back to go time how have you been
2: yeah it's been a while i've been traveling i guess
3: (laughs) yeah 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 you went to where did you go
2: Uh, i was in marbella spain right like the last time we talked like i was just going for like a conference and then i never came back to the show i'm so sorry (laughs) that's all right
3: (laughs) i can understand if you're you're off uh, uh, on travels to exotic places (laughs) for work it's a tough life
2: (laughs) (laughs) Such a yeah. <laughs>
3: and you—you you told me earlier that everything you do at work is completely confidential. Do you want to just break all the rules and tell us anyway, or?
2: Well, kind of like I mean, I'm actually about to switch to a new job. Like I mean, not a new job, but it's sort of like a new role. Um, and currently, I'm still exploring what I'm doing, uh, what I'm supposed to do, and um, it's confidential. Not because it's supposed to be super confidential, but. I am not sure about like what I will be focusing on, so I think mm-hmm. I will need like a week or something.
3: That's just exciting. Just don't get it
2: personal. It's not about you. It's just you know <laughs> I'm still exploring.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I do obviously I do take it very personally, but I'll pretend that I don't. Um, well, also uh, joining us on today's show it's only Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello there. And speaking of new gigs, you you've just started yours, haven't you? <laughs> Or yeah, yeah, re- recently.
4: Yeah, recently, it's been uh, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, still uh, onboarding, as they say. Um, but uh, yeah, still, still exciting. Still um, looking forward to contributing and learning. Um, you know, new new gigs are always uh, exciting that way, right? There's that honeymoon period where everything is new and you're learning and, and you're learning uh, about uh, systems and people and all that good stuff. And then at some point, I'm sure I'm going to cross that threshold. I'm like, ah, what is going on? I need to start fixing things. (laughs) But so far, everything's going well.
3: (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Yes, it is exciting. It's scary and exciting all at the same time, new jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, I wish you all the best. Well, uh, if you don't mind, we'll keep asking you about it on the show because I'm very interested. Like, I think it's useful for other people as well to hear about um things that we get up to in our professional lives so if you don't mind i'll keep bugging you about about that
1: sure thing <laughs> uh
3: so yeah we're going to let's jump straight in we're going to be talking about go tools today and i asked on twitter earlier uh which of the go tools are people's favorites and which ones do they like the most um mine i'll just kick off mine probably has to be go fmt or go fmt or go format however you say it um, you see it, it, it for those that don't know it formats all the go code so it looks the same um, and all the rules are uh, and baked into the tool so you don't get to choose tabs versus spaces you don't get to choose where the braces go you don't really get to choose a, a great deal about the the actual format of your code, which again, I think to some people when they're used to uh, having tools that allow them to configure all this, they feel like that's a deficiency in Go. But it turns out to be one of Go's superpowers, in my opinion, because what happens is all Go code starts to look the same and starts to look familiar. And I've done it where I've been to a project and found that the, the code just looks like I wrote it and I definitely didn't. And I think that, that's awesome if you think about pull requests you know with 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 white space sometimes pull requests and uh, having loads of white space makes it really difficult to really see what the crux of the change is well with gofunt you we don't have that problem because it's all formatted nicely um anyone else do you uh, do you, how do you feel about gofunt how do you pronounce it by the way let's just get that one out of the way
2: gofunt right
3: okay good
2: I mean that's
3: yeah that's what I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what
4: I'm told. It's it's always <laughs> awkward when uh, when uh, like, like if I'm teaching or something and I, and I say the thumped package for example, which is you know it, it, it's people kind of look at me sideways. So I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. Just just go with it, right? Because if you if you if you say instead if you say FMT or or format, God forbid, like you know, gophers are gonna look at you a little weird. We like, just just go with it.
2: Yeah, it takes a while for people to, I think, parse it initially and then they learn it and like they take it and like they don't question it. So I'm trying to, you know, keep it consistent by saying GoFund.
3: Yeah, same. I mean, I I, I agree. Like, I wouldn't have done that, I don't think naturally, but I heard about it. And yeah, I'm, I do it for consistency too. Um, it's funny because like sometimes people will say GoLang because when we when we use Google and when we search or when we use hashtags, we tend to write GoLang, but we never say GoLang. So it's a little pro tip for any uh, anyone that's new to the Go community. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about the language, just call it Go. Don't say GoLang. Mm-hmm. Same with fmt. Yep. <laughs>
4: yeah. I mean, the, the so with regards to the 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 fmt, uh, well not fmt Go fmt I should say. Um, hmm. The I the reason well let me let me let me step back for a little bit when I first came across GoFmt I was taken aback honestly because because I wasn't used to basically tooling sort of formatting my code to look and like a standardized sort of any sort of way right so. You know, I come from programming languages where everybody has their little pet peeves, little quirks. About you know, I like my braces, you know, on on, on you know to be lined up together. Right? And, and oh, and another person would be like, I like my braces to, me, to to end at the at the declaration, and then for the for the closing bracket or brace to be at the end or whatever. And so it's like people would have sort of these. These back and forths around sort of um, styling, you know, what what's more readable versus what's not as readable, and obviously it was all sort of subjective, right? Everybody has their own preferences, their own quirks, and what they're used to, and what they're not used to. So, but GoFont sort of threw all of that out, at the window um, when I first came across it, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, for the first month or so, I was like, ah, I I don't like everything about what it does, you know, it it, it, it I'm happy with like ninety percent of it, but I don't like everything about it. But then over as time went on, I really began to love the tool and what it does because the the beauty of it I think you touched on that is that every basic go code started looking like I expected it to right so basically that that cognitive load that I, that, that aspect of looking at code and reviewing code that just went out the window I didn't have to worry about okay is this is this person's code going to look differently formatted than this other one basically I could just focus on the actual code and what it was doing as opposed to you know, sort of a, a, I'm trying to figure out parsing my head, okay, this person's quirks are that way and that person's quirks are that way kind of thing. So it, it was valuable in that way.
2: Yeah. There's actually something from Robert Grismer that he used to say, He's the person who is maintaining GoFund and like all the rules and so on. He says that he doesn't agree with like all the styling. Um, you know, I mean, he doesn't necessarily agree with GoFund, but it's really good that like somebody's some tool is enforcing it. So there's no question. Um, I, I, I mean, I work for a very large company and I witnessed, uh, it took like four years to, um, just tweak one little side guideline change on the Java style guideline and can you imagine like, you know, there's all these like hundreds of people with like strong opinions about style, just like wasting four years debating on minor style issues. I like the fact that it is like GoFund, uh, there's like this canonical place. And there's no debate. Uh, There's like one source of truth type of thing. And everybody has to agree with it. Even if, you know, the formatting is not always what you would desire.
3: Yeah. Do you think they would be able to retrospectively fit that into the tool chain? Say that there wasn't GoFundMe originally and it just came out now. Do you think the the community and everyone would rally around it in the same way or do you think there's something to be said for the fact that this was there from the very beginning
2: i think it's necessary that like initially you create some like you know initial culture around you know just relying on a tool because I think it creates like enough people, you know, it creates this community with enough people supporting the idea and understanding why it's valuable. If you try to like inject this type of tools at a later time, the community is already fragmented and there's a lot of excuses to you know prefer a personal style because. You already, for example, invested in one particular style all across a company and like, there's no way to, you know, just kind of like fix things at a later time. So it's really good that they, you know, came up with a tool initially, at least that's my opinion.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's a few examples where the foresight or the insight from the team in the in the original design, I think we we really benefit from some of those decisions. And we'll talk about more of them as well. I think the fact that the, another one of the tools, Go Test, that was there as well from the very beginning. So testing as a concept was part of it was a first class concern in go, and that was of course makes sense because we we at the time it was being designed, you know that was kind of what how we were building software now we were writing tests a lot it was an important part of of software engineering um but the fact that they that they make these decisions i think early just sets a precedent and and yeah from there we we, I think it pays dividends every day.
2: Yeah, I think Go is doing a good job in terms of like you know identifying eighty percent of what is essential in software engineering, and I think you know tooling is kind of also representing those priorities.
3: Yeah. So extend. So thinking beyond GoFund then, if we look at Go Lint and also Go Vet, um, does anyone want to have a stab at describing the difference between those two, or describing what they actually do? Cool. Well, uh, uh, yeah. So, so go lint. Go lint is I, I I like it. Um, it essentially looks at your code and does some static analysis, and can catch common mistakes and kind of give you warnings about them. Uh, and usually, sometimes they're not mistakes, but they're just that uh, there's, there's uh, best practices and and. Um, and you can run the lint tools on your code and see if it's got any recommendations for things that you might change. So one example is if you if you have something in a package that's exported, if it starts with a capital letter, then you, you should have a comment on that, really. That's the sort of accepted practice. Now, the, the Go spec doesn't say that. So, it of course, nothing, you know, it's not a compile error if you don't have a comment there, but go lint tool will catch it and say, you know, for, for maximum kind of quality for the best quality you should consider a putting a comment here and and there are a few rules around how we write comments as well where we repeat the name as the first word in the comment and so there's a few little things like that that are encoded in the in the linter right
2: yeah uh there's you know initial actually like we need to mention first i think there's a difference between that and lint uh that is you know reporting more of like suspicious stuff and um you know like some patterns that might be just, you know, um, might be just, I mean, a misuse of the, um, of an API that it may actually, you know, just kind of like corrupt some memory or whatever. Um, like, think about like the typical example of printf, if, uh, you know, you pass the wrong type of arguments, that is going to um, complain about it. Hmm. Um, so both lint is more about like I think style errors, more of like um, if you don't, for example, go doc a public API, it's going to complain about that type of uh, problems. So vet became a part of the test, but like not I think all the things that is reported as a part of vet uh, is genuine. Um, so you can like, there could be like false positives as far as I know. And it also applies to lint as well. So these are not like a part of the compiler because, you know, are, there's like some uh, reports that is not accurate or something. Uh, but it's just generally like, you know, you need to follow, they generally generate like genuine enough reports and they're really useful.
3: Yeah, you're right. When it when it catches, if you use like printf or wrapf, if you use one of those f methods, and then you don't put the correct number of verbs or whatever the arguments in, catching things like that is extremely useful because it's quite hard at a glance to just see those kinds of mistakes. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think people should switch on those tools for their code base, at least run them for their code base and see what kinds of things it is actually saying because you might find you agree with them. The comment one's a good example. I mean, it, it's quite uh, dogmatic. It just says, okay, it's exported, so it needs a comment. Now, if, you're, if that method is something like, or if it's a function that says new thing, then it's obvious that's making a new thing. And your comment's probably going to say new thing makes a new thing. So we have a little bit of redundancy, but I think generally speaking, if you do follow the, the lint tools and, and then I find that, you know, the code again, it starts to look more familiar and you get all the other benefits of, of go fmt.
4: one of the things that uh, I typically do, and it, which is probably the reason why, um, for me, like off the top of my head, sort of differentiating between the linting and the vetting was was sort of I was like, hmm, I guess I've never really thought about the difference that much because uh, they're part of my tool chain. Mm-hmm. So, like uh, on my day to day, I use you know, VS Code uh, and and Vim and as as sort of my, my editors of choice, um, and basically they have the plugins, you know, and, and the extensions sort of you know built in. as part of my workflow. So every time I you know, hit save. Right, these tools are, are are running, right? They they're and, and I'm getting different um basically uh, uh um markers at different different spots from different tools, right? So there's another popular open source open source project out there, and I think it's called the Go Metaliner, um, which includes a bunch of those kinds of tools as well. You can configure you can turn some off and, and others on and whatnot. But these tools together, they give you sort of a, a, a set of outputs that you can basically go through and, and figure out, oh yeah, I, I missed, you know, I used the wrong verb here. I'm supposed to use a, a integer. I'm using a string instead, right? The Things that the, the linter and and, and and vet would sort of find for you. And, and if you ran them sort of individually, but because they're part of my tool chain, I basically I just look at my, my, my the view at the bottom of my editor and, and get a list of things that I go and fix. So I've sort of almost basically, I don't, Care, I should say, which tools give me what? Unless I really need to work with a specific tool, but I kind of you know it's part of my workflow. It's just part of my editor. And Every time I hit save, formatting gets done. Um, go imports does its thing. Whatever, whatever I, I've referenced in my code that is not imported, it it brings that in automatically. Um, all these things sort of happen. You know, the tooling kind sort of makes it easy to sort of um, just focus on writing the code and not worry so much about you know, having to run individual tools one at a time kind of thing.
2: Yeah, it's a good uh, point that actually making it that part of the, you know, the editing experience is really useful. Like especially vet is reporting a lot of like, you know, useful stuff like, hey, this is unreachable or, you know, you're passing the wrong, um, you know, you're passing, for example, unmarshal and non-pointer and like stuff like that. Like it's so hard sometimes by just when you're typing and when you're just like coding, but like tool is really helping you to do the right thing as you are, you know, programming.
3: Yeah, I, and I extend that to running tests as well. I tend to write unit tests which run very quickly, and then you can run those every time you save the package. Usually, depend you know once they, if they get if they start getting too slow, then of course you have to have a different strategy. But certainly in the beginning, if it's unit tests that just run very quickly, and the the build time in Go is still phenomenal, we always kind of forget about it um, until you have to go and build a different. Code base, then you, then you appreciate it again. Uh, but and Johnny, by the way, yeah, the meta linter now apparently is called GoLang CI hyphen lint. So if you want to install uh-huh. that into VS Code, it's GoLang CI hyphen lint. That's the new name of that. Yeah, but but you're right. It's the meta linter. It runs a range of other linters and kind of gives you gives you that one view of it. And they integrate brilliantly into the IDEs as well. So that's the other thing, like you say. You can run it on save, but even if you don't, you can, you can still usually integrate it into the IDE in some way that just makes it uh, part of your routine. Because, you know, anytime you can get that live feedback from the code, that's valuable, you know, because usually as you're working, you learn too and that's a great way to learn things as as you're as you're writing code and to see a linter saying oh you know this is unreachable now or that thing's over there now mm-hmm. um you know the, and, and if it's tests too then then oh these tests are broken over here that you didn't expect mm-hmm. um and you just get that feedback from the code which is so useful when when you're working
4: and you shouldn't have to wait until basically you know if if you have um, CI continuous integration, you should um, you shouldn't have to wait until the code reaches um, you know that remote server where where all these tools are run for you to get that feedback. It, it's much easier, much faster, right? Uh, like you're saying, that feedback loop is much tighter when when it's part of your tooling. So there are some things you can do locally, right, to make sure your code is 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 prompted, it makes sure it's 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 vetted, it's linted, and all that and all that good stuff. And then when it it goes up for review for PR, you know, Circle, you know, uh, whatever, whatever CI2 are using, Travis, Circle, whatever, um, there's dozens of them. So you can sort of, you know, they give it it a blessing and then now people can just focus on what does the code do, right? They don't have to tell you, hey, you forgot to, you know, um, run GoFundMe or something, right? So you take advantage of these tools locally. They're very good tools. So I I, I wholeheartedly encourage folks to, to sort of make them part of your development workflow.
2: Yeah. One of the, I think, uh, best parts is like they are really fast also, you know, it's a part of the editing experience because they are fast. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I, I'm coming from like background where, you know, I use a lot of Java tools. Um, and it's, you know, not like as I think smooth the experience we used to have like similar static tools, but it was not as smooth as all these go tools. So uh, nobody is making it optional because it doesn't really, you know, make the editing experience more challenging because they are fast and they are useful.
1: This episode is brought to you by Square. Millions of businesses depend on Square partners to build custom solutions using Square products and APIs. When you become a Square solutions partner, you get to leverage the entire Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for Square sellers. You don't just get access to SDKs and APIs. You get access to the exact SDKs and the exact APIs that Square uses to build the Square platform and all their applications. This is a partnership that helps you grow. Square has partner managers that help you develop your strategy, close deals, and gain customers. There are literally millions of Square sellers who need custom solutions so they can innovate for their customers and build their businesses. You get incentives and profit sharing. You can earn a 25% SaaS revenue share, seller referrals, product bounties, and more. You get alpha access to APIs and new products. You get product, marketing, tech, and sales support. And you're also able to get Square certified. You can get training on all things Square so you can deliver for Square sellers. The next step is to head to changelog.com Square and click become a solutions partner. Again, changelog.com Square.
3: We mentioned Go test. That's another tool that we use a lot. Um, anyone that's not used it, if you write test codes in your Go programs, and you do that usually by naming the file with underscore test.go at the end, and then you run Go test, it will r- look through all those test files, and it will actually run all the test code for you. And that's really how, you know, you can if you do TDD, you know that your code is is fulfilling its promises. It's doing what you said it was gonna do. Um, there's and there's also another little feature in the test tool, which I think gets overlooked a little bit, and it's the the race detector. Um, so when when you're writing concurrent code, it's possible for you to uh, break the rules and, and sort of try and read and write from the same data at the same time. And if you try and do something like that, that's illegal and it will crash the program. But of course, it's very difficult to see that sometimes when you if you've written the concurrent code and certainly difficult to write tests for it because sometimes it might just not happen just because of the way that things get scheduled um but there is a a race flag which you can pass into the go test which will it's a bit slower but it does some additional checks and you can catch those um potential deadlocks early which is which is kind of cool
2: yeah and it's um the, the tooling is also a part of, you know, the standard tooling. It's not just a test, but it's a really good addition that like t you know, detector is also a part of the tests because we all have this workflow of not merging things if the tests are not passing. So you would, you know, ideally want to enable the race detector as a part of your CI. Um, and it's amazing, but uh, there's like one thing I think we should mention that your tests should cover... Concrete cases, uh, concrete cases, so uh, the you know detector can detect them. If you don't represent those like concrete, you know situations, the detector won't be able to detect them. But it's amazing because it's um, it's just like so on point, um, and it's easy, and it's a part of the standard tools. So you don't have to like you know figure out like all these additional extra tools or whatever in order to get the benefits.
3: Yeah. Now it's worth saying that the the race detector will. If it, if it reports that there's a violation then it that is a violation but it doesn't necessarily catch everything isn't that true
2: yeah Yep. Yeah.
3: okay so but still i mean you know it's still I, I, to be honest i've i've never seen a, a, a race condition get through after testing it with
2: wouldn't. Because you are actually good in terms of, like, you care about your tests. So you represent all the cases, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of times people are just like, you know, not creating those like uh, situations where concurrency is a problem. Uh, mm. They have this, all these like super micro tests. Um, so they don't really, you know, capture it. And I think it's really important to tell that like your tests should represent those cases so the race detector can detect them.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a really good point. Well, with TDD, you tend to get good coverage. Um, even though I don't uh, covering by the way, uh, code coverage is also another part of the tooling that we just get for free, which is, is, is awesome. Uh, but yeah, I, I never try and shoot for a hundred percent code coverage or anything, but naturally it's quite high with TDD. And I suppose naturally you'll also cover a lot of those cases that you talked about as well. Um, I like Go Run as well. Go Run is like, a we don't tend to have much magic in Go, but Go Run is probably the magic tool uh, because it actually secretly does a build and then executes, you know, it does a few steps behind the scenes. But it's great if you're just learning to code or you just want to write a little script quickly and just execute a program. You can use Go Run and you pass in the name of the file or files and um and it just runs it i mean it builds it to a temporary directory and i think it gets deleted afterwards although i'm not sure um but yeah i think that also is it's such a nice thing to be able to just quickly see results and see feedback from what you're doing and go run is another example of that
2: yeah i think uh, people use go run for their like first hello world program um, it sometimes becomes like complicated. So then they, you know, have this habit of like using Go run. Uh, Go run, I think before Go was a little bit more difficult to rely on because it was some sort of like, you know, it was able to work outside of Go pad. So, um, the behavior of Go build and Go run was not quite the same. So, you know, it's just kind of like people have been advocating to always rely on go build or install rather than go run. But I think like it's just really nice for a hello world or if you have a script type of thing that you just go run, um, it's really useful.
4: Right, the the go run, I think, yeah, like you were right, uh, Um, Matt, when, when you're saying basically it, it, from my understanding is that this it does the same thing as, as go build, it's just the difference being that, okay, once a program is run, it just discards that temporary uh, artifact. Um, at least that's... that's that's the high level of what I think it uh, does. Um, one thing is worth mentioning is also you can run it with a, I believe it is run you can run with a dash race as well um, that way you know if there's any sort of a race conditions in the code, it'll actually um, when if it, when the program fails if it panics, um, then you'll actually get some information around uh, where that sort of a um, race condition occurred as well.
3: hmm I didn't know that that's brilliant yeah, I think race is race
2: is supported in um, like tests build um, run like general all across the tools
3: hmm. but you but it adds overhead doesn't it and slows down your program and things it's not something you would just
2: always switch on yeah that's why i think it's useful to just you know make it uh an optional thing for tests um but you know apart from that like you don't want to have the race detector always on
4: yeah. I've, I've had mixed results depending on the size of the code base, obviously. Uh, the, but these days I work in a lot of somewhat small um, code bases. I can work a lot with microservices and that kind of thing. So these, these code bases tend to be somewhat small, relatively speaking. Um, so I, I by default, whenever I, my, the default make command, right, for, I use make. So when the default, whenever I run make, the default is basically to just run it with the dash race flag, and run the test with the dash race flag. Um, I, I haven't noticed um, significant slowdown in that, but again, you know, obviously, your mileage is going to vary depending on the size of your project and how many things you've got going on.
2: There was a benchmark about this, and like, um, I think it was kind of like memory usage is again like five times, you know, larger if you uh, have the like race detector on. And I think execution time-wise, like again, like there was like some reports, but it's really dependent on the use case, as you say. So it's kind of like adding some overhead, which could be, I think, um, two to twenty x or something. If I can, you know, remember the numbers correctly, uh, there's a really good blog post actually, or an article on the uh, golang.org about the race detector, and uh, there must be like some numbers over there.
3: Yeah, cool. Okay, well, so I was thinking as well about um, go get go get's another one of the tools, which I think. You know, obviously, things have changed a lot, especially in the module space. Um, But I've got to say, when I was first using Go to just be able to install packages by saying go get and then the package name. And then for that package name also to be the import path and to be the URL of where that package lives. um, I I found that to be such an elegant thing that it was very easy to to install things i mean this is when we had this is in a go path world where everything just gets put into one place um but go get just really made that very uh very easy um how do you feel about go get versus the new module tools because they the, the working with modules is is a little bit more complicated
4: so um i'll 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 punt the modules um to <laughs> to jvd and, and let her <laughs> tackle that but i can tell you that for the when using Go get, like especially when I'm teaching, like th- being able to say, "Look, like we're gonna we're gonna import this package." Before we can actually import this package and use it in our code, you know, we need to go get it, right? So you know, I'd literally say, "Okay, go get," and then basically I'd find the name of the package, a fully qualified path, basically you know, with GitHub.com, whatever, um or whatever the wherever uh, the public repository is, um and then you know, and then basically I'd get this blank stare from the students. They'd be like, "Like, okay, what just happened?" You know, and then it I, it dawned on me that okay. If I literally copied, right, that path, go into the browser and paste it in the URL bar and navigate to that repository, immediately they were like, oh, okay, I see see what this is, right? You are literally pulling this code that lives at this very path, right? You're putting on the command line, you are pulling it down, now I can actually see and read that code you know, in my browser and see what it is I'm actually pulling down, right? So the whole thing about, you know, uh, pulling down the package, you know, it goes in your GoPath, none of that stuff makes sense, right, for them. But the moment that I can actually go into a browser and put that very path in, it, it sort of clicked, right? They, they Now they understood the value of go get and it didn't quite you know it didn't matter really much where um it was being put in the go path it just the fact that they they knew how to get it they knew how to go where to go and see whatever was being pulled was was almost magical
3: for them mm, funny because it's no magic and it's almost the the fact that it's so obvious I.e., that's the url go and look at it you know, you know what a url is um i think that that's great and that you you the the little story you just told then makes total sense i mean when when i use if i use some npm stuff for a project i install a few things and i look in that node modules folder there's 16 million folders in there um (laughs) (laughs) and yeah and i don't know where they've come from um it's kind of hidden it's it is magic Whereas it's just you know that thing of being very simple and clear, even if you sacrifice some features for that um I always think is has has such a positive kind of dividend that it keeps paying again and again later.
2: I think we need to make an episode on Go mod. Uh, but I think Go, I agree mm. that like Go get is a really good, you know, initial experience. And uh, one thing I like about it is if uh, if you're Go getting a main package, it you know installs it, puts in your Go uh, Go path bin directory. Mm. Yeah. So uh, it's just like a good way to you know distribute tools as well. Uh, before I think Go. I was just publishing binaries and like making sure that like i have the you know the right version all across the versioning still is a problem with go get but like i i think it's a it's an okay sacrifice
3: yeah okay well, i'm just gonna what i'm gonna do is m- just keep moving on to different go tools because uh, i've i am already learning things about these <laughs> as well um <laughs> and the other one the other one with go build um, which I love is the fact that we can do cross compilation. Now this this has been around from I think the beginning. Um, essentially, for those yeah. that don't know, you can choose the the target architecture, the target machine to build your Go code for. That's very useful if you're using Docker because you can do like on a Mac you can do the build for Docker, and then you've got the doc- you've got the binary the Linux binary uh, that you can then put into the docker image or you can of course put the code into docker and build it in there uh, in that environment but do you how how's your experience with cross compilation so far
2: i think it was magic like when i first saw um you know they were typing go OS go actually it's pronounced goose um and windows and go build and like you get a windows binary it was like whoa right like mm. um uh, it, it was fascinating, and I usually generate binaries for Linux, so it was like I kept, you know, working on my Mac without any worry or anything. It was so awesome.
3: Yeah, have you used it, Johnny?
4: Absolutely. Um, one of my uh, first, uh, one of my first jobs using Go full time. My responsibility was the, basically to to have a, a sort of a multi multi platform um, build process. Um, so basically, I relied on, on Goose and Gorch quite a bit. Um, and for those of you who don't know what Gorge is, basically the, that's the companion to to Goose, G O A R C H for Go architecture. Um, yeah, so using Goose and Gorge were sort of a bread and butter um, to having that work done and basically being able to push out binaries for all kinds of different platforms. And I mean, there are a ton of them that you know, Go support out of the box um, for ARM processors, and, and I mean, there's there's a there's a the combination, a sheer combination you can have. Um, I've lost I've lost track of of, of basically how all the different variations you can push out, but it, it's it's really was a godsend. I mean, I, there's no way I would have been able to to sort of get that job done without without these things being in there.
2: Uh, I think it's also awesome that like I was doing a lot of development uh, for ARM and you know for a Raspberry Pi, for example, uh, the processor on a you know typical Raspberry Pi is just going to be not comparable to my laptop. So I would just, you know, build things on my laptop because it's going to be faster. And then I will push it to the Raspberry Pi because it's just so much easier to do cross-compilation. And uh, it's just like maybe like 10 times faster or something.
3: Wow. And so how does it actually work? Because obviously the compiler is doing a few steps. And then ultimately it then creates a binary that's made up of... um, From the machine code, isn't it? Is it just that the machine code is generated differently depending on the architecture?
2: Yeah, you know, like, I mean, they know what to generate for each architecture. So they just basically take the input and they know what to map it. And then they generate uh, the output based on the, you know, um, operating system and architecture.
3: Mm -hmm. And that must have been possible because of the way that they built the tool system do you think it was deliberate that they wanted to be able to build to any target architecture or do you feel like they just realized they could after because they'd just built it and designed it in a simple way
4: i don't think you you stumble on something like this um by accident i think it had, i mean if i had to guess i'd say this was by design um considering that the the creators of of the language basically they had they had um, they were building for for Google, right? So I imagine that at some point they need to be able to run um, binaries on different platforms with different uh, CPU architectures and, and you know 32-bit versus 64-bit and all that and all that good stuff. So I imagine this must have been sort of a part of the the plan, part of the design. This this seems way too complicated and way too powerful a feature to have just come across um, um, to have fallen out of the build system.
2: Mm. There's also like we uh, I think simplified the process, but there's this intermediate assembly. So uh, the compiler first translates everything to that intermediate assembly, and from that point on, uh, they are being compiled to the you know the architecture specific um, machine code uh, instructions. Sorry. So um, it's it's actually like you know the internals of compilers like this like two step thing, uh, and this is like a really typical way the compilers work they're just you know taking it converting everything into an intermediate language and then from that intermediate language you can just basically target whatever architecture you want to target mm.
3: and of course you can have build tags as well does anyone want to describe build tags
2: yeah build tags are uh it's providing conditional compilation, and you can create different rules for example you can have constraints to say only use this file for Linux builds. Or you can say, I just want only ARM builds to have this file included in the build. Uh, you can, there are many different rules provided by the toolchain. chain. Uh, Go version is one of them. Arbitrary custom build tags is one of them. So it kind of gives you this like, you know, possibility to switch to different implementations depending on the Go version. Uh, dependent on the you know the uh, operating system or architecture or some custom build tags
3: yeah i've used those successfully when it comes to testing sometimes if there are long running tests or if there are integration tests that require a different dependency to be running or something i use a build tag in our test files and that's quite an easy way to choose a subset of things to run um, and it's just a special comment that goes at the top of the file isn't it
2: Yeah. It's just like, I think it, it must be on, um, I mean, it's on the top of the file. Um, there's a particular place, but that's it. Um, and it's really readable. I think my only complaint about this rules, uh, about the build constraints is like, it's just really hard to sometimes just, you know, have like multiple rules represented. It becomes really hard to parse. Like if you want to have like more complex rules, like, Hey, just, Include this file on Linux, um, you know, Darwin and blah, blah, but not on this particular thing. On top of that, like not for this custom build tag. Like I think writing those, expressing those uh, complicated, more complex type of constraints is a little bit hard. But otherwise, I think it's just pretty straightforward and I use build tags all the time.
1: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool helps teams focus on product development and customer value, not building and maintaining internal tools. It's a low-code platform built specifically for developers. No more UI libraries, no more hacking together data sources, and no more worrying about access controls start shipping internal apps to move your business forward in minutes with basically zero uptime reliability or maintenance burden on your team some of the best teams out there trust retool brex coinbase plaid doordash legal genius amazon Allbirds, peloton and so many more the developers at these teams trust retool as their platform to build their internal tools and that means you can too it's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog
3: okay well i want to also mention a couple of tools from uh the community as well um because remember you know we are we are writing we are using go tools all the time but we can write tools as well and some people have contributed like i think go imports was a brad fitz patrick project that was his own kind of um idea that he just did on his own and it essentially wraps go so you get all the formatting but it also resolves imports for you um, and you can do these things too in, with your own tools um, and some of the tooling as well doesn't have to be go tooling running on our machine matt Holt has a great json to go service if you google json to go um, you basically paste in a json blob and then it generates the go structures for that json blob extremely useful especially if you're going to consume an api and you need all of the data and you don't just you just don't want to sit and type out all the field names so that's a very useful one and that's a hosted website so you can you can go to that um any other community uh are there any other community tools that we like
4: i personally like um the go report card um Website, which which is, well, I guess it's less of a local tool, but something that can basically evaluate sort of uh, how close to the idioms right of the code community your 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 code is 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 uh, um, being kept at. Um, I think it might even incorporate some of the tools we've mentioned before, the lantern, the the vet vetting, and um, it includes some other things like a cyclomatic complexity analysis, and has a bunch of other um, nice um, sort of um, Bits it adds in there as well and sort of based on these things it gives your repository a grade, right um, I think on a scale of A through F or something like that um, so I find that you know useful so especially when I'm evaluating um, a repository a package third-party package to, to, to determine whether I'm gonna use it or not um, if it has a, a score I will look at that if it's if it's anything other than a then I'm going to take a closer look, right? I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant with sort of bringing it in because I'm like, okay, well, what what best practices, what idioms are you not following, right? So I'll take a look at that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I may just, you know, sort of um, um, see what's happening and maybe replicate locally without having to bring the package if I don't like the score, so to speak. So it's kind of a it's, – it's a nice – it's sort of a, another data point, right, so to speak, to help you sort of evaluate the, the the quality, I should say, of, of a repository. But yeah, it's, it's one of the things I, I like to see as well.
3: The same for Godoc. Uh, Godoc is a tool you can run locally, but we have also the godoc.org hosted service, which lets us view documentation for any open source project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's also okay. nice. It's a nice way to provide that capability because it, it makes sense. You want to share just a link, and the nice thing is for GoDoc, it's just Godoc.org slash, I think maybe PKG slash then the import path. So again, you're still referring to that import path and we see it.
2: I personally use a lot of tools from, um, Dominic. Honuff. Like he has this, um, go tools, repo, uh, static check tool, which, you know, contains a lot of like, you know, style check, um, a lot of like, um, linting type of like, you know, features that, uh, Golint doesn't support. And, um, it's, you know, there are some cases, sometimes like there's a controversial style topic, uh, it's not possible to, you know, merge it into the official tool. So people would just go and like, you know, put it in, uh, the go static tool. Um, so it's, it's a really useful to, you know, tool to take a look, um, in terms of, I think static tools like that, I just rely on, um, you know, static check more than
3: Golint. Yeah. And, uh, Fatih Arslan, um, he made a service, um, which I think is called fixing me, which is, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a GitHub integration as I understand it. And it analyzes, it does a bit like the go report card, but it actually creates, you know, PRs with, changes in it so it actually does the fit it's sort of proactive like you've got another member on your team that's cares only you know like the pedant who just cares about all the style rules and all that and um and that's a project i think it's worth checking out it's called it's it's Fix me it's uh, spelled f-i-x-m-i-e um so have a look for that one too it's a similar kind of idea to the go report card but tightly and more tightly integrated into github has anyone here written any of the, any uh, uh, kind of tooling static analysis or otherwise?
2: I only wrote some tools to generate some stuff like from an interface. Um, well, these are also some static tools, like, uh, one common case is generating implementations of interfaces. And there's like a lot of boilerplate. up uh, plate. So I wrote a tool that kind of like, you know, takes the interface and creates the, you know, the concrete implementation. And then you just go and like, you know, fill the implementation, fill the methods.
3: Uh, and do you, did you use the AST stuff and the parser and things
2: to build them? Yeah, I used uh, whatever was in the standard library. It was not that hard. Uh, it was not that like, I mean, good looking either, but like it was possible to, do, you know, get it done in like 100 lines or something.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, cool. Well, I think we should also spend some time talking about some of the performance tools as well um that that we just get for free there are some great talks on youtube it's quite a it's quite an interesting subject and it's talked about quite a lot in from different angles um but perhaps jana you could tell us a little bit about uh, did i see you do a talk about the performance tools it might be
2: possible because like i worked on uh, i know some of the dynamic tools uh when i was working on go so it was part of my full-time job Mm-hmm. Um, and I generally have been, you know, working in this area for a while. So it's possible that you oh, have seen me giving a talk, but I can't remember because I'm giving too many talks nowadays. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I thought it was all confidential what you work on.
2: It's not, uh, so the confidential stuff is different than,
3: uh, Oh, what's so that?
2: none of my performance tools, it's more about like computing, you know, products. And, right. You know, we'll figure out in a couple of weeks.
3: <laughs> I'm just trying to, yeah. I'm just trying to be like a one of those journalists, hard hitting journalists that tries to get out the information that you don't <laughs> want to say. But if I'm too polite, you just start say oh, I'm not going to talk uh, about it, and I
1: go, oh, okay, bye. The,
2: uh, well, the problem is, I really don't know. Like, I know generally what i'm going to be working on but i don't know the specifics and i'm a really precise person i think yes <laughs> i don't want to like give any impressions that i'm going to work on something that like i'm not going to because people will be upset
3: yeah it's absolutely fair <laughs> Just joking. yes uh, so yeah. but Yada, could you tell us a bit about the some of these tools though and what they're for for anyone that doesn't know about them
2: yeah I think generally speaking, I think let's go beyond the performance tools. Uh, there are a lot of like dynamic tools in Go and they are a part of the standard tooling. Uh, some of them are related to performance. Some of them are more related to like debugging type of stuff. Um, the typical, you know, let's, we, we can talk about, for example, perform performance uh, initially and um, the Go Came around when it first came around, it came around with some of those dynamic tools because uh, we went to the SRE team and the SRE team is, at Google is just really specific about what they want to put in production. So they want to have like, you know, enough visibility into things. Um, and one some of these were related to, you know, performance. Uh, they want to be able to, you know, get the profiles, they want to get like some runtime traces because they specifically want to be able to understand when there is something going wrong and like they want to be able to pinpoint to those. Um, so, Pprof uh, support was baked into you know Go since the early times because of that requirement. For example, it provides you some profiles. Uh, you can also add your custom profiles, which is a useful topic. Um, but you know it provides the CPU profile, memory profile, you know Go routines and uh, thread profile and mutex uh, cont- contention profile. And um it was really crucial, you know, to Have a language mature enough to put in production because uh, that's basically most of people think that like performance is about development time, but it's also important in production time. Uh, On top of like people of support, uh, there is like, you know, good benchmarking support baked into Go test. So benchmarking is a first class citizen in Go, which is not really, you know, quite the same situation in other languages. And I think it kind of creates this culture where uh, you care about, you know, benchmarking stuff, right? Like, I don't know what is your opinion on this, but I've seen, you know, lots of different communities have different opinions about benchmarking just because of the, you know, the tooling or, you know, it's really easy to write benchmarks or not. What do you think about it?
3: Well, I've seen it used perfectly and I've also seen it used incorrectly. Um, I've seen an example Mm -hmm. where the benchmark, just because of slight issue with the way it was written, um, it was it, it reporting the completely incorrect results. So, yes, yeah, so I think one, but if it's used in the right way, because like, you know, if it's if you depends on what you Testing. I suppose if you're going to be testing something and you're making HTTP requests, for example, there's so much variation anyway in HTTP. You're not really going to be getting any meaningful information. But if you're if you've got two little algorithms and you want to know which one's better at certain tasks and stuff, then yeah, it's 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 great. And I I agree with you, Yann. I love the fact that it's baked straight into the language, um, and you just have to write a function that starts with you know funk benchmark, name, take in the special variable and as long as you get the for loop inside it in the right place and also think about setup and teardown work and where that's happening then yeah it's a great way to really just find out which is better because sometimes it would be really surprising. In fact I think it would make a great talk if someone out there wants to do it or a presentation of like here's here's some code, which one's the fastest? And have people kind of guess and sometimes I find it the results to be very surprising.
2: Yeah, I think benchmark in general is a discipline that you know takes a lot of time to kind of like learn. And what are the you know the other factors that actually improve you know uh, you know impacts the performance? So I agree with you that like I've seen a lot of like wrong benchmarks and people are like super strong opinionated that it's actually an optimization but it's actually like, like one specific th- thing that improves the performance maybe like for one specific case or something mm. and I think you need to have a, a really good understanding of the runtime and everything around the language in order to write good benchmarks as well as like interpret the results correctly so it's, it's a really tough game <laughs> that's true would,
4: would you say that if so th- when it comes to Benchmarking and, and performance optimization, like I try very very hard not to sort of jump to that sort of right away. I, you know, I'll try to solve a problem first, and then and then try to optimize. Right. So basically, preventing premature optimization. And these tools make it because they're part of the standard uh, standard tool chain. They make it very easy to just you know start using them like right then and there. Is basically, start start leveraging them right away. Um, and there there was a time maybe we were still in that time where. You know, it, it seems like there was a new sort of HTTP like, you know, muxer or router coming out every you know, every couple of weeks, and they were all like, "Oh, benchmark compared to this these other things." You know, this one is zero allocation and is you know point zero five percent faster than the other one. So it was, I, I was, I kind of found it silly a little bit um, because of all that sort of yeah. g- going on, and and I was like, okay, we're kind of <laughs> missing the point here a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's having that tool. I think it's great, you know, and like you, I don't think I don't think I've seen that basically the, the, that kind of capability sort of built in, you know, part of part of the language from 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 the start. So the I, I tend to sort of be very I'm very careful with that because it's too easy to to have to create a culture within an engineering team of of okay before I can even ship this thing I have to make sure it's like super optimized and and all that you, we're putting kind of the the cart before the horse a little bit there Uh, it's it's too easy to do that so i I tend to be i tend to shy away from that stuff um um, you know i I sort of bring it in when when i need to
2: i completely agree i think um you know optimizations in development time is kind of like fabricated problems like i mean Mm -hmm. you realize what needs to be optimized in production right like um for example what we do is um continuous profiling which is we keep collecting some profiles from the, you know, the production binaries. And we sort of like have an understanding of like, you know, within this project, what are some of the hot calls and what is like some of the, you know, stuff that is in the critical path, like, and what critical paths are like more often being called and like, you know, what happens if I just optimize this function or like, what is the, you know, actual cost of this particular function in the, you know, the, the, if you think about the whole system and, you know, depending on the usage and whatever. So I think it just really makes more sense to start thinking about these cases in production and like by looking at the data, you just go back to the development environment and like try to optimize those things and, you know, keep using these tools. Uh, one of the nice things about go profiling the actual pprof is like it's a really low overhead type of profiling thing and uh, you can enable it in production so you can you know just keep you know getting uh, profiles uh, from production without impacting the critical paths so crazily but there's a overhead Uh, but you know there are some strategies if you have multiple replicas of a web server for example you can enable production maybe for like um, one minute or five minutes uh, on one replica, and it's just like sort of like you know, depending on how much latency you will, you know, experience, uh, it's sometimes doable, and that's what we do. It uh, that's how you know what we do, and um, just try to optimize based on the usage, and you know what is the critical usage, and like what are some of the hot paths? Like, identifying those hot paths is also very important before jumping into any, you know, optimizations.
4: Right. Having a problem before you solve it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Yana, when
3: you say you do continuous profiling, do, do, when when you deploy services, do you have P4, PPROF already enabled in there and you just switch it on or?
2: Yeah, think about like this. Um, so although, you know, the Powerform uh, PPROF tools, PPROF can be tweakable. Like it, it's dynamically turned, you can turn it on dynamically and you can turn it off. So what we do is, Basically turn it on for, like, several minutes, Uh, collect the data, just get the data, and, you know, just parse it, store it, and then we aggregate all that data, and we have this, like, you know, daily, weekly, whatever, reports, and you can take a look at, like, oh, this service, particularly this handler, is often used, and all these, like, particular functions are, you know, if it is uh, accounting for the like most CPU time or memory or whatever and you can just go and like dig and like you know optimize those particular places Um, I I wish that go ahead like some tools around maybe supporting this type of like more continuous integration uh, sort of continuous profiling uh, features Um, you know it's possible to write a tool kind of aggregates you know multiple p-profiles maybe it could be possible to write like a library that automatically you know just turns it once a while reports to some like central Mm. service and then you know turns it off and so on um i think there's like some 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 we can do much better in this field it's just kind of like up to the user right now to plan and you know design and just you know do this type of things but like that's basically what we do i i gave some I, I wrote, uh, on this topic, um, for, for a while. And, um, it's just really like some companies are aware of these methodologies and some companies are not. And like, it's just, it would be so nice if community was, you know, producing more best practices as well as, uh, more tooling around this.
3: Well, there we go. There's the call gone out. Anyone who's looking for a new open source project or something to hack on. What a great problem. Um, could you build something that samples running go code and you know periodically at some schedule and uh and collects the results up um would be extremely useful and really fun probably as well
2: yeah it's like a lot of fun ones once you start to see like for example a large company you know aggregating all the profiling and data so you can see like oh the companies, you know, the for example, you can actually improve your bill on your cloud provider. Uh, you can say that like a uh, lot of the calls are actually like dependent on this one function, um, and you know, if you optimize it, we can actually cut the billing like by ten percent or something, right? Like it's actually pretty useful once you start to do this systematically everywhere.
3: Hmm. Well, I love I love the message of when wait till you've got something running and then look at optimizing it. I think in some cases. You can shortcut it, but generally speaking, yeah, that advice is uh, sound. And the idea of being able to profile uh, running production systems and uh, to understand them better, I think, is is um, a great goal to have. And what a great use of the the tools that we that we have as part of our ecosystem. Well, on that bombshell, I mean, I think that's it. I think we've uh, we've reached the end of the hour, and so the end of this episode. Thank you very much, Johnny and Jana. It's been awesome. How, have you liked it?
2: I can talk about this topic for hours, and I think, you know, this was awesome. But we should keep continue, you know, talking about tools, I think. <laughs>
3: yeah absolutely well there's lots, there's lots more to discuss and um, I, I might even see if we can bring in some people from the community that have um, built some of the tools that we're using today one one other little uh, bit of it, uh, info that I think is quite interesting. the only actual contribution I personally made to the go project was to remove something from Go lint. So one time G- go lint got a bit easier. Uh, to satisfy thanks to me you're welcome
2: <laughs> Yay. Uh,
3: yeah I, I i delete code i delete code i mean i love it well yeah that's it thank you so much um we'll see you next time on go time
0: thanks for listening to this classic episode of go time Subscribe now. If you're new, head to gotime.fm for all the ways. And longtime listeners, do us a solid by sharing the show with your friends. That's the best way people find us. In fact, I will cut you a deal. Email a personal recommendation to three friends and bccgotime at changelog.com. I'll send you a free pack of changelog stickers. That's a win-win-win.
2: With win-win-win,
0: we all win. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for having our CDN covered, to BMC for these banging beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next week, we welcome Ronna Steinberg to the show. She joins Natalie and Ian to discuss object-oriented programming and Go. That's what you can look forward to next time on Go Time. Mm-hmm. <laughs>